your Bible, turn with me tonight to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 11. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11. For those of you that study the Bible, it's very familiar scripture. The chapter of faith, the roll call of faith, as some would say. Hebrews chapter number 11 and verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Verse number 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Father, bless your holy word tonight. In thy name, amen. You can be seated. There's no way in the world that I intend to exhaust this chapter tonight, but we're going to start here tonight. And the reason I came to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews is to show you how that the New Testament writers will take Old Testament events because this is what happens in the 11th chapter of he Hebrews. These are historical events that took place in time in the Old Testament, but the writer of Hebrews makes a spiritual application of these events and applies them to Christ and to prophecy of the future. So this is one of the ways that we study the Bible and we learn Scripture is to let the Scripture interpret itself. And that's exactly what's going on here. It, uh, and so when you do this, you learn a lot of things uh, from Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Let me say this tonight. I believe the Bible and I love the Bible. I don't like it when people uh, challenge the Bible and when they point out so-called mistranslations or errors in Scripture. I don't like that. A lot of people say, well, you're old-fashioned. Uh, you know, you need to come up with the times. You need a new translation, this and that. Folks, I want a Bible I can believe. When I open it, I can believe it. When I pray over it, I put my hand on this Bible, I believe it. I believe every word in it. If I come upon a passage in the Bible that challenges my knowledge or thinking, uh, I give God the benefit of the doubt. You know what I mean? I give him the benefit of the doubt. I say, now, Lord, you know, uh, just like this morning when I talked about the woman at the well of Samaria, why did he pick her? Why did he cho choose her? Well, the scripture doesn't speak specifically to that, but the bottom line is it certainly has something to say about it. The apostle John, when he wrote that, and uh, it gets the message across. So I would encourage you tonight and urge you tonight to be very careful about anyone who causes you in any sense whatsoever to cast doubt upon what you hold in your hands as the word of God. Because as I get deeper into this message tonight, you'll be, I believe you'll begin to understand why. It is necessary, and I believe it. I believe it from cover to cover. Understand all of it? No, I don't understand all of it. And that makes me appreciate the one that wrote it because he's smarter than I am, amen. He knows a whole lot more, and Scripture is given by inspiration. So first one we find mentioned here in the book of Hebrews 11 and verse number 4 is Abel. The t Scripture teaches us about Abel. said he brought a more excellent sacrifice. What did he do? He brought a blood sacrifice. And if you don't understand that, the difference between the sacrifice of Abel and the sacrifice of Cain, you really can't progress much further in the Bible. 
because it's not a matter of human ability and human works and whatever that you can produce. It's simply a matter of God-given. God made that animal and God provided the lamb. He provided the blood. In verse number five, we read about Enoch. Enoch had a desire for God, but this is what it says about him. It says he was translated that he should not see death. Now the writer of Hebrews put that commentary to it, that he should not see death. Why? Because Enoch is a type of the church of the living God, that we should not see death and that we do not come under the wrath of God. First Thessalonians chapter number five. What's that mean? That means that the church is not going into the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. Any time, any moment, we could be caught up to meet him in the clouds and in the air. It's called the blessed hope of our glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Noah's mentioned in verse number seven. Noah's known for his obedience and he, he acted upon things that had never been seen before. Noah is one, of the, uh, is one of the unique characters in the Bible because he's mentioned with Job and with Daniel. Noah, Job, and Daniel, they are picked out in the Old Testament as having righteousness that is different from all the rest of them. The, chapter number 11 and verse number 8, Abraham is mentioned. What's Abraham? Abraham's the father of many, many things. Abraham separated himself. And it says in verse 10, he looked for a city. He looked for, the, for a city. Well, Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. The writer of Hebrews added that part about him looking for a city. But you see, Abraham is a type of the pilgrim of this world who looks for a city, which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That city is 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles deep. It's called the New Jerusalem. We look for a city. The Bible says here we have no continuing city. We're moving, moving about. We're pilgrims and strangers to this earth. This earth is not our home. In verse number 24, it brings up Moses. Look what it says about Moses, too. This is interesting. Hebrews chapter number 11 and verse number 24. Listen to what it said. By, Mo, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You notice what it says, that he came to years. He came to the time of accountability. He came to the time when he had to make a choice now. The Jews at age 12 call it bar mitzvah, a son of the law, one that is accountable to the law. Moses, I'm not saying Moses was 12 when this happened, but he made a choice. He chose to be called not the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He knew who his mother and father were. And does anybody know who they were? Amram, Jochebed, you read that in the Bible, that's who, that's right, that's his parents. Moses, the Bible says in verse 26, though that he esteemed the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, amen. Lay for yourself treasures in heaven where the moth and the thief cannot attack and where it cannot take from us. So these are great lessons. The Bible says he esteemed the reproach of Christ. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Moses I've picked out here. Now, there's a whole lot more than that. But I just call your attention to these because there are lessons to be learned from every one of them. But now look at verse number 39. Look at verse number 39 of Hebrews chapter number 11. And the writer of Hebrews comes to this conclusion. Notice carefully now in verse number 39. And these all having obtained a good report through faith received not the promise. Did you see that? They received not the promise. The Old Testament saint was looking for something. 
but they did not receive the promise. You see, my dear friend, we have received that promise. We know so much more. We have been given so much more. And so therefore we are so much more accountable unto God. For to whom much is given, the same is required. Now look at 2 Peter chapter number 1. All that was to lay the foundation for this. 2 Peter chapter number 1, verse number 16. Now we all know who this is, don't we? This is Simon Peter, all right? Simon, son of Jonas. He said to them, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Some say Moses, some say Elias, some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the one we're talking about. He said, Simon Bar-Jonas, Simon, son of Jonas, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father which is in heaven. No man knows the Son but the Father. No man knows the Father but the Son. Now look at it carefully. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were what? What's he say? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. All right, this is a personal testimony. And this is an apostle, folks. This is one of the 12. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This voice came, this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him. Where? Where was this? In the holy mountain. What is this? This is what's called the Mount of Transfiguration. This is when he was shining brighter than the sun. And then, no, carefully watch what happens with this now. Watch the apostle. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Did you get this? Whereunto you do well that you take heed as into a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. What do we mean here? You mean to tell me that there can be something more sure, more certain than the eyewitness testimony of an apostle who's writing this scripture? And he says in verse number 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Do you know what he just did? He took that Old Testament, the Tanakh, he took that and he said to you what those prophets prophesied hundreds of years before Christ came is a more sure word of prophecy than even the testimony of an eyewitness apostle that lived 2,000 years ago. Am I reading it wrong? That's plain English, folks. That's about uh, sixth, seventh grade English. This is not Shakespeare. This is as clear as it can be. So what's the point here, preacher? Well, the point's very clear. He's calling attention to the fact that the Bible is a whole. It's a book, a complete book. It took nearly 2,000 years to write this Bible if the book of Job was written 1,900 B.C. If not, you hear most preachers say 1,500 years. That may be true. It depends on when Job was written. But you're looking at a book that took a long time to write. And prophets looked into the future a long way by hundreds of years. And what's happening here by the Apostle Peter, he's saying, I want you to listen to these men. Listen to what they have to say. Read them. No prophecy of the scripture, he said, is of any private interpretation. 
Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Theos noustos, God breathed into their nostrils. He breathed into their soul. He breathed into their mind. The word of God. No man spoke of his own. If a man professed to be a, a prophet and anything he said was not true, he stoned him to death. He's a false prophet. So we're looking at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These are prophets of God. And he gives all the credence he possibly can to them and said, listen to these men. This is a more sure word of prophecy. In 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse number 10, look what he says here. 1 Peter chapter number 1 and verse 10. This in no way takes away from what Peter said. No, it complements what Peter said. The Bible said in 1 Peter 1, 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should be, that should follow. And to whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel to you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Can you see it? Can you see how God, even though he uses a prophet, the prophet may not at all understand what he prophesied. He's simply an obedient vessel in the hands of the Lord to tell you what's going to happen. That's good enough for me. But when the apostle Peter comes along and makes a statement like this and says, a more sure word of prophecy, that meant that the words of Moses, Isaiah, and all the prophets really estimate only one word exhibiting a perfect agreement in all its parts, really constitute rather, only one word exhibiting a perfect agreement in all its parts, bingo. When you get home and have a little time, take your, take your computer and type the word B-E-N-G-E-L into it. And you'll find a German back in the 1800s, I think it is, and maybe early 1900s. Just read what he says. They say he was able to say more in fewer words than any man that ever lived of his time. Just a few words and he would say something with power. What he said was that all the Old Testament prophets all that they said when compiled together constituted one word about one man. He said, search the scriptures, for in them you think eternal life, and they are they that testify of me. In Luke chapter number 24, when he had arisen from the dead, and he met the two on the road to Emmaus, he said this to them, Luke chapter number 24, Luke 24, and verse number uh, 25. Here's what it says, Luke 24, 25. He said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. See the prophets? How many times did Christ go back and appeal to the prophets? Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So the suffering and the glory, the two aspects, two parts of the coming of the Lord. If you don't get the suffering and the glory right, You'll, and don't get the two natures of a saved man right. You don't get things like this right. You'll never get the Bible right. 
You'll never be able to understand what he's talking about. In verse number 26, he says in Luke chapter 24, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? He's trying, he's trying to say to them, look, you know I was crucified. You watched what I went through. I died. And when I died on the third day, I rose from the dead. And that's in fulfillment of prophecy. And it had to happen. It had to be. The Lord Jesus told his disciples one day, he said, I must go into the hands of sinful men. They'll take the Son of Man and they'll crucify him. And on the third day, he'll rise from the dead. And the disciples said, not so, Lord. Not so. Not so. And the Lord said, get thee hence, Satan. Thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things of man. John chapter number 5, if you'd like to turn there with me tonight. John 5. John chapter number 5, verse number 39. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Now, I told you about the Samaritan this morning. You remember the Samaritan? And I told you about the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is a pentum, means five. It's the first five books of the Bible. The Torah is what's uh, it's referred to as the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are the books of Moses. The, the, uh, these people, uh, the Samaritan, reject the prophets and they reject the writings. The writings are like the, books of, the book of Psalms and so forth. They reject it. They say this is not scripture. And by doing that, they are totally ignorant of who Christ is and who he would be when he comes. You remember what the Lord said to the woman of Samaria at the well? You remember what he said to her? She said, we worship in this mountain, Mount Gerizim. This is where we worship. He said, you worship, you know not what, for salvation is of the Jews. But he went on to say this. He said, neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem shall you worship, but you'll worship God in spirit and in truth, for God is a spirit, and he is. He's a spirit being. How do you worship him in spirit? By being filled with the spirit, having the Holy Ghost living inside you, and you will worship him. You will worship him. And you will love him if the Holy Ghost resides in you. In verse number 46 of John chapter number 5, he said this. He said, for had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. The Lord Jesus said to these Jews in John chapter number 5, he said, if you had believed Moses and you say you're children of Abraham, you would have believed in me. You would have known me because Moses wrote of me. Well, did Moses write of Christ? Yes, he did. In Genesis chapter number three, he said, the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. Who's that? He, in Genesis chapter number 12, he said, the seed of Abraham. Through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is Moses writing. In Genesis chapter number 49, he talked about Shiloh and all the people would gather unto him, Shiloh. Genesis 49. <laughs> Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. He said, a star would come out of Jacob and the scepter that shall rise out of Israel. Is Moses writing about Christ? Oh, yeah. Then in Deuteronomy chapter number 18, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up unto thee a prophet like unto me. 
And that in itself is a great study. I've got a lot of notes on it tonight. We don't have time to get into all that. Say, so what do you mean? So many ways that Moses and Christ are just alike. And so many ways that their ministry is just alike. That's no coincidence. How do things like that happen? How long? When did Moses live? We go back in time. Where was Moses? Where do we fit? Chronologically, where do we fit Moses? Over a thousand years before Christ, where do we find him? About 1400 B.C. That's Moses. Oh, yeah. That's a long time ago. And that was 1,400 years before Christ. And he said, the Lord your God will raise up and thee a prophet. This is what John Peter Lang says, and he lived in the 1800s. How many times have I told you the old commentaries are the good ones? Okay, they're the good ones. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't good contemporary commentaries, but I'm telling you this, I'm telling you this from years of experience. If you get some of these good old ones and lay your hands on them, you get a hold of them because you got something good. Listen to what Lang says. He's a German. Moreover, the moral law of Moses, by revealing the holy will of God and setting up a standard of human righteousness, in conformity with that will, awakens a knowledge of sin and guilt, Romans 3.20, and thus serves as a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, Galatians 3.24. So indirectly, when Moses wrote that law and wrote about its relationship to man, he was writing about Christ. Because Christ is the answer to that law. He finishes that law. He's the fulfillment of its demands and righteousness. If you were about to die and you knew you didn't have much time left, which would you have? Would you want the tables of the law, the Ten Commandments? Would that bring you peace? Would that bring you comfort? Or would the empty tomb? Would that bring you comfort? Which one would you turn to if you knew you had only a few moments left? Would you be turning to the law? Or would you be turning to the one who died for you, who fulfilled the law? Let me tell you something about the law that's burned in me for a week. There are those out there who preach all the time about the Ten Commandments. I'm all for the Ten Commandments, believe me. I am not here tonight in any way to denigrate the Ten Commandments. But your approach to the commandments will determine which way you go. If you think that by keeping these commandments and by adhering to them, and the 613, by the way, the Jews have, and you surround your life and build your faith upon commandments, and you are observant and you mean it, and you're as serious as you can be, you're as honest as you can possibly be, and so your life is filled with obeying commandments and seeking God and searching the commandments and praying that you haven't broken one and doing all that you can to please God through his commandments. Let me tell you what that's going to do for you. It's going to drive you further and further and further and further away from God. On the other hand, this is important. Please, this is important. If there is something inside you, something dwelling in your heart and in your soul that burns within your being, that looks at those Ten Commandments and says, I love that. That is a manifestation of the righteousness of my Father. The commandments that you find throughout Scripture, all the commandments of the Word of God, when you see them, you say to yourself, by the grace of God, I pray that I don't break them. 
But if I do, I want forgiveness. I want grace. I want mercy with God. But you know deep down inside your soul, you'll never live a life where you will, where you, where you, where you, where you will never break one of these commandments. You know it. It's not going to happen. So what are you doing? You're saying, I respect, I love, I do the best I can to keep his commandments, but that does not save me. I am saved by the one that I believe, I trust. He's in my soul. He wrote his name in my very being, and I love him. So when I see the Ten Commandments, oh no, I don't look at them and disdain them and cast them aside as if they're nothing. I look at that and I say that's a manifestation of God's righteousness. God give me grace to keep it. But I know my dear friend, keep it or not, that is not going to save me. What will save me is the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the difference, folks. And you'd be surprised at how many people line up with the first. Their life is all about commandments. It's all about keeping them. It's all about you failing to keep this commandment, this holy day, this, that, this, that, this, that. And my dear friend, that will not save you. The only one that can save you is the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You accept him and you'll love them. John Peter Lang says, finally the ritual law and all the ceremonies of Mosaic worship were typical of the Christian dispensation. And then he says, as the healing serpent in the wilderness pointed to Christ on the cross, Numbers 21.9, this is the most important testimony from the unerring mouth of Christ to the messianic character and aim of the whole Mosaic dispensation and to the Mosaic origin of the Pentateuch. And on it goes. This is from a man who had great respect for the word of God, and so do I. 150 years ago in Germany, there was a school called a School of Higher Criticism. It's commonly referred to as Graf-Wellhausen theory. It's called the Documentary Hypothesis. How many ever heard of that? I don't want to get a little technical with you, but don't you understand what's going on? The documentary hypothesis says that, for example, the book of Genesis was written by a four, five, six. They don't, they don't agree among themselves. A lot of the material was redacted. It was added in later, stuff like that. And so, therefore, to say that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, they would reject that out, outright, completely reject it. So what you have is a school of higher criticism, identified as Graf Wellhausen, that takes a young man into their, into their, into their school, and by the time they're finished with him, four, five, six, seven years later. He no more believes the Bible than he believes he can rise and fly. He believes the Bible was put together by Jews and that it was, uh, you know, whenever they decided to add something new, redaction. Redact means to take a document that was written today, all right, a hundred years from now, somebody takes that document that was written today and they go back into that document a hundred years later and they change what's in there, see? That's a redaction. And there's a lot of that. In, in higher criticism. So, so what do you do, preacher? I believe Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The only thing he didn't write is where he died. <laughs> Talking about him on Nebo. Other than that, Moses wrote it. Moses wrote that book. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Moses wrote of me. Did you hear that? He didn't say the documentary hypothesis wrote of me. <laughs> he didn't say 15 redactors wrote of me. He said Moses wrote of me. He said search the scriptures. 
For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they that testify. No, it's the scriptures. What's the scriptures? Well, when he said search the scriptures, Matthew had not been written, folks. Mark, Luke, John, none of the New Testament. So when he said the scriptures, what was he referring to? Of course he was referring to, as the Jews call it, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. They don't call it the Old Testament by calling it the Old Testament. If a Jew calls it the Old Testament, that's a tacit approval that there is a New Testament. <laughs> and they don't believe in the New Testament. So they call it the Tanakh. Genesis through Malachi. All right? The Lord Jesus Christ said, that's Scripture. The law, the prophets, and the writings. Scripture. He never one time, never one time, caused anyone during his lifetime to cast any doubt at all on the scriptures. They believed it and he believed it and he fulfilled it every jot and every tittle. So when I have a Bible in my hand tonight, I believe the Bible. I believe it from cover to cover. And I believe that if I cry out from my heart and from my soul to the one who wrote this book, I believe that he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He never gets tired and he never sleeps. If I call upon him at 3 o'clock in the morning, he's there to hear it. Amen. Amen. And I know one thing is for absolutely certain. One day in 1973, I called upon him, bowed my head, and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. If another person was never alive on this earth to ever hear that testimony, it wouldn't make a bit of difference with me. I know what happened to me. I know what happened to me. When I raised my head, I was not the same person. I had, somebody had changed me from the inside. And you know something, I can say this now. That's 50 years ago. Just as clearly I can say this to you, that's just as sweet or sweeter than it was that day. It's just as blessed, just as good, just as holy. Yeah, just as holy. He's just as holy as he's ever been. If I lay my head down tonight and I don't ever wake up again in this world, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. I know him, folks. I want you to know him. Not intellectually. It's fine to know things intellectually, but this does not save. For with a heart man believeth unto righteousness. The heart can go much deeper than the mind. Do you know him? Do you believe your Bible? Don't let anybody shake your foundation, this word of the living God. Don't let them do it to you. Don't let them do it to you. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the time we've had tonight with your word. I pray that I've laid the foundation that anyone can build upon, that they believe the word, that if they come to a point in the Bible where they're, they're, they're confused, it can happen. It, can, it does happen. Instead of, instead of changing the Bible or correcting the Scripture so it will match their thinking, just simply come before you in humility and say, Lord, it's your word. I don't understand it right now. Maybe down the line you'll show me when it's time. But I believe your word, and I still believe it's true, and I believe that it's holy, and I believe it's inspired. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. What do we got here, brother?